in First Peter chapter three is where we are um, dealing now with verses eight uh, through twelve. If you're following in the uh, little note packet that we gave you, it's on top of page seven. And uh, last week, goodness, we spent almost the entire, uh, as I recall, it was all your fault, the entire time on verse 8. But it's that's good, because what Peter is doing here, just to remind you, and I'm not going to go over everything again, but is is talking to us and to the uh, original readers of uh, the virtues of righteousness, what does righteousness look like? And uh, that's why this is such a magnificent um, little summary, because verse 8 is the positive dimension of it, it meaning righteousness. Verse 9 is the negative, what you do not do. So if you, again, I'm not going to write all this up on the board. We did that last week. But the, the first part of his command, and please note, in verse 8, finally, all of you, this is not just for a very top spiritual elite, only a few ever attain this. It's, it's for every Christian. This is the goal God has for every Christian. Unity of mind, and we talked about what that meant. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time on that. And sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and humility, humble mind, or how we maintain unity of mind, where we see we see things the way God sees things in terms of our... It doesn't mean that we will necessarily agree on all things, but the key things that are important to a God, there is unity. We will have and project and be unified, even if there is disagreement on minor issues. And by achieving that, by sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, compassionate hearts, how I prefer to translate that. And finally, humility. We didn't really talk about that last one. Again, it was your fault because we ran out of time. I'm just kidding. I'm trying to inject some humor here. Nobody's getting it. Nobody's laughing. So anyway, uh, just real quickly, what what does the ESV, which is what I'm reading from, translates as a humble mind? Or you could simply just summarize it in one term, humility. Um, What is humility? And why is humility, a humble mind, so necessary for there to be unity, unity of mind? Now, that was two questions, but they really kind of just naturally flow together. Look at the response not occurring in this group. <laughs> if you're if you're humble, you're you're not beating your own drum for for uh, 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 another agenda. You're, mm. you're, you're, you're staying within yourself uh, and not, not uh, uh, expounding yourself, uh, elevating yourself, putting yourself first, right. It, it really goes hand-in-hand hand with servanthood, doesn't it? Being a servant, which is kind of a key term throughout the New Testament, particularly of if, if one, one term captures how believers relate to one another and even more broadly relate to others, is to seek to serve one another. Um, I... Um, I part, it was part of a, of a funeral on, on Friday. My pastor's uh, father passed away. And uh, Matt, um, uh, my boss, he, I'm on staff at that church, but he's my boss, even though he's really a lot younger than I am. <laughs> but that's good. I, I so enjoyed working with these young guys. He asked me to be a part of the service. And I know probably most of you don't know him because he lived most of his life in Lincoln and Kearney. But Doug Shader was his name, and he was he was a remarkable man. And he had been head of an organization and was administrative head of an organization. And he planted a little church out in Kearney about eight, nine years ago. And that church just grew like crazy. But uh, they made the decision, which was a wise one, to not have the service in the church. So they rented the little convention center off of exit 272 there in Kearney, which is right in back of the Holiday Inn there. 1,100 people showed up. Amen. And uh, the reason I say that is because Doug 
Doug was the kind of guy that just perfectly modeled what verse 8 is telling us. He was a very strong, very gifted leader. He really was. But that humility. Um, he loved people, and he would, uh, no matter what he was doing, no matter what was occurring in his schedule or whatever, he always had time for people. And he, he had an incredible ability to challenge people to do better. Uh, he worked with a lot of young men, particularly, uh, and just that challenge, you know, and it was always out of humility, not because he was pontificating, I certainly know better than you, now listen to me. It was to engage these young guys to really think more broadly about their gifts and to think more broadly about the impact they can have. Uh, You're not thinking big enough. You're not taking on enough of a challenge. Uh, You're you're thinking of planting this ministry and, and reaching 20 people. Why don't you think of a thousand? Why should why why reduce it? That's just an example, and there were there were a handful of testimonies that were were given uh, of the impact Doug had in their life, and I just kept thinking of of this verse, that was Doug. Sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, humility, um, and he's just one of those guys. Was he competitive? They say you play touch football with him, you'll never escape an injury. <laughs> that he was so competitive. I mean, he was so competitive, and he drove. Um, his son, Matt, my pastor, was uh, on, uh, he played football in high school, and he was on two of the state championship teams during his, so his son has that same drive, that yet he says that same set of qualities that his dad had. And I, I don't really think, I have known a few men in my life but I don't think there are many that I can look at verse 8 and say they really model all of those things together. Because we all struggle with pride, struggle with self-elevation. I mean, it's just kind of, I, I'm not saying it's unique to men, but a little more even than women. We just really, that the competitiveness, which is sort of a, a given often, can very quickly turn into a pride and an arrogance. And that's, Peter is saying, it's not what righteousness is. So I conclude then uh, our little discussion of verse 8 with just a reminder that, that, that humility is servanthood. It's, it's thinking of others, not yourself. It's not seeking to elevate self, but elevate others. To um, always seek to serve, and serve is, serving is the key to leading. Servant leadership is the key to leading effectively over time. So in verse 9, he, this is often the way things like this are laid out in the New Testament, especially then he presents like a negative side to it. So true righteousness, verse 8, but true righteousness also is do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Reviling is not a term we use a lot today. I, I can't remember the last time I heard somebody use the word revile or reviling in a sentence, but uh, another way to maybe think about that is is insult. Do not repay insult for insult. That's maybe a, even a better way to translate that, particularly in the 21st century. But on the contrary, bless. Now that's, that's a very natural thing to substitute evil and insult with, isn't it? Instead of evil and insult, you bless them. Again, nobody's getting these jokes I'm telling today, so I don't know. <laughs> Either I'm failing or you're just not with me. But, I mean, when you look at verse 9, I don't know how about you guys. When I look at verse 9, my initial, my initial response, that's impossible. Do not repay evil for evil, insult for insult, but replace evil and insult with bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Which is what leads him into he leads Peter into quoting from Psalm thirty four, which if I were to quote any psalm to prove my point, I probably wouldn't have chosen this one. But we will talk about that in a minute. So let's just explore this a little bit. Um, 
don't repay evil for evil, insult for insult. Is Peter therefore saying that the, the description of a righteous person in this negative part in verse 9 necessitates that in effect we become milk toast Christians? Where we let we are we are the doormat Christians. That's not an original thought with me. I heard that from somebody else. Doormat. You know what I mean? Where you just let people walk all over you. Um, where you 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 have no sense of of a responsibility to protect yourself or protect your loved ones. Evil for evil, insult for insult. You just take it. How do so? How do we process this? What is he really? Uh, what is he really saying here? What What does this look like? Because I, it, when you read it, and, 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 and assuming you're thinking about it, and then you try to go from thinking about it to trying to apply it to your life, which is what we're always supposed to do with God's word, you just say, "I can't do this. This is impossible. This is too high of a standard. I simply can't do it." Uh, just compact it real short. A friend of mine in Council Bluffs, like I flipped him off. They're off traffic. They ended up in Road Ridge. Oh. They're going through Council Bluffs and Road Ridge. How can you possibly go through Council Bluffs and Road Ridge? But anyway. Finally, <laughs> the guy pulls into a parking lot. My friend pulls in. They get out of the car, and the guy's rolling his sleeve up, and my friend, you know, he just hits him. What am I doing? Wow. And he said, sir, are you okay? And the guy just stopped and looked at him and said, my wife just left me. Um, and paused a minute and he said, I just want to hit something. Mm. And my friend said, well, my name's Dan. Let's go get a cup of coffee. Let's talk. Mm. He ended up leading him to Christ. Oh, my goodness. And, oh. Yeah, and the guy started coming to church with him, and everybody oh, started his life over again mm. without his wife. And mm. uh, that's what I think it looks like. That is, a, that is a perfect illustration. I mean, it really is. Because the impulsive response, well, road rage in, in our culture today is a great example of that. Um, is you're you're cut off or something like that, and your immediate response, I'm going to do that to you. And I maybe a lot of you think that's abstract. You have no idea what it means. So you know you never struggle with that. So you have to really abstractly just conceptualize it. But it is, uh, it is something that I think in the day to day grind of life you start. I really know what he's talking about. Because our our, our desire and our culture seems to send the message. You hit me, I'm going to hit back harder. You you do something, I'm going to make it work. I'm going to hit you, but I'm going to make it harder. You know, we have leaders that say that. I'm hit, I'm going to hit back harder. Um, and so we have to think. Okay, now what Peter is saying is virtuous righteousness. The virtues of righteousness. The first thought that comes into your mind is not necessarily vengeance, revenge. You're, that's a great illustration because all you do is you look at that man who did whatever he did in in the uh, in the traffic issue, and your response is vengeance. You have no idea what's all going on in his life, why he's churning, and why he's what a perfect illustration of uh, when you take the time to find out what really is going on in this person's life. You may be used by God to lead them to the Lord or help them in some other way as a servant. It's um, it, it must get down to a bedrock principle that is in the Old Testament, in the law. It's stated by Jesus, and it's repeated by Paul in Romans 12. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So if I've understood all of that and what's in the law in Jesus' words and in Paul's words, because they're all saying the same thing, that our our, our motivation in dealing with people who have wronged us is not vengeance. Now, again, does that mean we don't defend ourselves? That's not, that's not what it's saying, because there is a principle in the scriptures of self-defense. But it's, 
it's how we're responding emotionally and in terms of our attitude and in terms of our motives when we are wronged, when somebody does something wrong against us. I mean, he uses a very strong word, evil, very broad term, but evil, and then a narrower term, and I, I think the best way to maybe bring that into English is insult, reviling for reviling. Nobody talks like that in the 21st century. So insult for insult. I mean, every one of us, is, you know, we know what insult means. So it's your initial response instead, <laughs> Peter is saying extraordinarily, is on the contrary, seek to bless them. Seek to bless them. Your friend did that. God caught him in the middle of responding impulsively, uh, intuitively, and protected him from that. He ended up being an enormous, remarkable channel of blessing in somebody's life. My wife is much better at this than I am. That's why I should have my wife with me 24-7, because she's always reminding me of a principle like this. Um, that's happened to me. I wish I could tell you it have every time that ha that does not happen to me that way all the time. But it has happened to me several times in my life, often with students, often with staff, or, or with just random people I get to know, or even people in my church, the various churches I've been involved with. When you start to find out why why are you lashing out like this, and you find out there is something much more deep, much more difficult that is really causing this, and then ultimately God can use us to be part of the solution for that person's life, whatever that might be. I mean, this is you know we're talking here about and, and the illustrations are wonderful illustrations, but many times that isn't how it works out. You know, you try to be a terrible blessing, they still punch you in the mouth, you know. <laughs> but it's how God can use this. So it's maybe a principle from verse 9 would be something like this. Then I, a couple of you have your hands up. I'll get, just let me continue one more uh, thought. Perhaps a principle, to put it into words, would be seek, don't seek vengeance, but seek a channel of blessing. Instead of vengeance, seek blessing. And what does that mean? What does that look like? What, what can that specifically um, itemize out? And I don't know. I, there's no set template for that. But how can I be a blessing to that person who's just insulted me or hurt me? <clears throat> Well, if it's in traffic, you, know, you mean you can you, know, you can catch yourself and say a quick prayer for that person. Yeah. But yeah. if you're confronted directly by somebody, that's probably not the right. It probably is a better way. Well, and it's 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 hard because of of our emotions and and our our immediate response to things like that because we act impulsively. And it's it's how how do I start to get control of that? so that my impulse does not result in lashing out. Fred, you were going to either say well, something or ask a question. You said, is it possible? And my thought was, no, it's not possible. I, I cannot do that like you're talking about. And I don't think any of us can around this table. But when Christ left, he said, I'm going to send a comforter. And that's the Holy Spirit that loves us. And in dwelling us, the Holy Spirit, it seems to me, can take over from the flesh because we're being conformed more and more. We're being sanctified more and more. Each year that we live our lives trying to be what God wants us to be, knowing that we're not, but we're a work in process. And we help that process, I think, and we get blessed. If we can reach out to, like, that John's example, I mean, there was a huge blessing flowing from that. And that was the power of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't his flesh, because the flesh says, I'm going to nail you. Mm -hmm. And while that traffics through our minds, 
it isn't what we really want to do. Um, so I guess there's it's a warring of factions of flesh and spirit within us. Mm. Although this is simple, I'm going to write it off the board. You and I, as men, need to think seriously about developing a strategy for holiness in our lives. Now, I, uh, I'm not sure it's important for me to tell you this, but I'm going to say it anyway, because one of my goals before I die is I have a whole out book outline on this topic. I would like to write a book, and that would be the title of it. I have another project I'm working on now before I get to that, but I think this is really needed for us, and that is exactly what Peter is getting at in these two verses. There is the, there is the positive of verse 8. None of the things in verse 8 that are itemized out there are natural to us. None of them. None of them are natural to us. And the negative the negative of verse 9 is even more persuasively presented as not natural to us. And so what Fred said is absolutely correct. It is the Holy Spirit who indwells us as we put our faith in, in Jesus, who indwells us, that enables us to do this. That is what's in verse 8 and verse 9. But you and I this is the work out your salvation with fear and trembling, verse, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Why? Because God is at work within you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's a perfect two verses in sanctification. But the verse 12 of that passage is what I'm talking about here. You and I have to want to do this. And I can tell you, and I can't imagine I'm unique here, I can tell you initially, impulsively, and intuitively, I don't want to do verse 8 and 9. I don't want to do that. Because the nature at the vital center of sin is selfishness and self-centeredness. It's all about me. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I start to learn it is not about me. It's about us. It's about us. We're in this together. And so the kinds of things that Peter is talking about as he's writing to a suffering, persecuted church, because you remember that when we started it. We're going to see that in the next paragraph. Now he really starts to zero into that. How do you deal with suffering and persecution and so on? So he's setting us up for that in the way he's organizing his, his letter to the, to the people to whom he's writing his book. But this strategy means... And this is what, why I chose to use this word. There's an intentional, there's an intentional act of our will here. If we don't want to do it, it's not going to happen. Do you know what I mean? If, if we don't desire this, if we don't desire to allow the Lord to transform us in the air, these areas, it's not going to happen. I mean, we have to, we have to get to a point where we say to the Lord, in, in effect, this is how I want to live my life. Because I see, uh, you know, I don't think any, it takes any imagination for us. If we seek a life of revenge and vengeance, getting back at people, that, that's, that just drives you almost mad. Because you're never going to be satisfied, you know. And it's, it's the kind, okay, what do I replace that with? And it, it's, I'm looking for ways in which I can be a source of blessing to people, even those who are my enemies. But that's what I think Peter's getting at. How do I seek to be a vehicle of blessing to people that are my enemies? And of course, the model for this is Jesus, right? I mean, because, I mean, 
everyone was against Jesus <laughs> in terms of the leadership, Rome, and everything else. But much, much, much more broadly, all of humanity was in rebellion against God. But Jesus sought to be the channel of the blessing of his Father by going to the cross and dying and, and, and sacrificing himself for us. Instead of vengeance, he sought to be a blessing. Now that, again, that's an extraordinary example, but that is the example that we follow. So, uh, Fred. So if, if we think we can get angry at one another or situations and all like that, that's nothing compared to the anger that God had against the sin mm. of man. Mm. And he blessed us with Christ mm. to propitiate that sin. Mm. And give us salvation. That's right. That's right. If anyone had the right to wipe us out and seek total annihilating vengeance, it was God, but he chose to, to bless through his That's son. That's why he says vengeance is mine. Yeah. Yeah. I will take care of this. That's what my wife, uh, she is so good at that. And she just keeps, you know, reminding me and, and the things that she would tell the kids. The, the, the Lord takes care of this vengeance. It, he will take care of it. And so, um, again, it, it's it, it, the line is, and I know you know, that's why I said we're not milk toast or doormat Christians. Self-defense, we have a legitimate right to protect ourselves, protect our family. That's not necessarily what, you know, if somebody takes out a gun, shoots you, you don't, or threatens you, you don't try to defend. That's not what it's saying. Uh, it's it's the normal the normal responses to the things that are part of a fallen, broken world. Evil, insult, slander. How do you respond to those kinds of things? May I say a word? In the course of doing business, I called on a guy, cold, and he gave me two orders. Get out and stay out. I said, well, my reference to you said you were a nice, pleasant guy. <laughs> you found out that wasn't true, didn't you? <laughs> All right. This is too convicting. Let's move on, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Any other thought? Yes, sir. I forget your first name. Hi, I'm Ryan. Ryan. I just wanted to share a story that my wife told me uh, in the past week that was it's along the same line. It was, it was encouraging, and it's also very humbling, for especially for... For me, my wife was uh, shopping at Walmart in the past week, and uh, she was going through a, a line with a checker, and uh, she could tell that the checker wasn't wasn't from our country, and she had seen her there before uh, several times. She was a regular gal, and just in the course of conversation, she's like, you know, where are you from? And um, he's from Kabul, Afghanistan, and she's like, oh, my husband. Uh, was there uh, several years ago, and they started talking about that and the languages that she spoke and people groups and that kind of thing. And um, her response to my wife, she, she goes, um, I've seen you here before several times, and I wish that people treated me and, and treated checkers like you treat people. Hmm. So this is a compliment that she's giving to my wife. Like you say, your wife does... She's a good reminder for, for, for me as well. <laughs> but um, just, just that people notice and how you treat people. And at the context of that, I think there were some mistakes on some different um, transactions that um, I think people can be probably pretty irritated or pretty angry mm. with. And my wife responded by being very kind and gracious. Mm. Um, and it's, it's just it's kind of sad to hear that because this lady is basically telling telling my wife that she gets mistreated a lot as just being a checker at Walmart, that people aren't very kind to her mm. consistently. And um, so it's just a, a story that um, the people notice when you're different than that. And uh, it's just a reminder to be kind. Um, because people, when, people, when things don't people go are watching. your way. Yeah. And, um, and when there's things that, yeah. So that was very humbling to me because the morning she told me the story, um, I had two situations where uh, things had, had gone um, poorly, um, and I had to choose to respond. And I, I don't know if I responded greatly. It affected some clients of ours, and I, sometimes I don't care if people treat me poorly, but if it affects 
people that I know, I, I still res responded probably too too harshly mm -hmm. uh, to the situation. But but people people see this and they observe it, and um, um, it's it's just a good reminder that we um, we we need to be kind and, and treat people differently um, in the world. So. And if I could add, when we do that, people really notice because it's so extraordinary, so unusual, so unnatural. And it's, uh, it seems to me that that more than anything else, in particular our culture, but I would assume in almost any culture, but it is really the mark of a genuine believer. You do respond to circumstances differently and people notice it. A clerk, coffee shop, Barista makes a mistake on your order, and you know, how do you deal with that? That's why the strategy for a very, very, very close friend of mine used to say, We need to think what kind of a person do I really want to be, and what kind of a person do I want people to see. And that means I have to have a strategy for this, I have to decide beforehand the kind of person I'm going to be. And your wife is a perfect illustration. That lady from Kabul recognized that. She saw in her, she had no idea, I'm assuming, she had no idea she was a Christian. She had no idea what she just saw. She's acting differently than most about everybody else I'm seeing. And I think that's part of what Peter's getting at here. It's, you're intentional about this, and you're seeking to represent in how we, the, I call it the virtues of righteousness, what people see. You know, it, uh, this, I don't totally agree with this, but yet I understand what he's getting at. In the 1100s, Francis of Assisi used to say this to his, to his uh, fellow friars. At all times, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Now, you have to think about what he means by that. I mean, obviously, the gospel, you, gotta, you have to say it. You have to, but what he's really saying is how you act as you act out the gospel is what will draw people to giving you the authenticity to be able to tell them about Christ. And I, that, is, that is for me, uh, that is for me one of the greatest challenges in that day-to-day -day consistent living this out like this, where, you know, somebody does something wrong or makes a mistake, you, know, you don't lash out. And I'm using strong language because I don't think most of us lash out, but it's, it's what's perceived. And I found over the many, many years of working with young adults, you know, they're doing poorly in a class or they're, they're, they're creating some issues in a particular interpersonal situation in the dorms or something like that. Take the time, if you can, take the time to find out what's going on in that person's life. Because almost always it's manifesting something much more deeply uh, felt in their lives, a struggle, and it's just manifesting in a way that you can help be a part of that solution in that, in that student's life or that young adult's life or that young man's life that can, uh, can be far more effective than just lashing out of them, lashing out at them, making them feel bad, humiliating them, and that kind of thing. I, I've often, and I think you all know because you've lived in Nebraska many longer than I have, but Coach Osborne was able to manifest that in a way that very rarely have I ever seen a coach do that. You know, he, was, he, was he firm? Absolutely. Were his demands high? Yes. But in how he dealt with a lot of his players, um, I, I, as, as an educator, I always, I always tried to think this way. Always look at the potential of that student. Not where they are now, but, but the potential. You know, that's how God, God sees us, not just that very second in our life where we failed or stumbled. God sees in the whole span of our lives what we are becoming. Yeah. And, and it's, it's having that patience and that incredible capacity to see the potential in a person, what they can become. And uh, my daughter, who's in, in education, she's a reading coordinator now, but Joanna has that ability with young children. Uh, I, that would be, if I were called to help young children, I, I think I would have pushed back on that from the Lord, said, Lord, you got the wrong person. And thankfully, he didn't want me to work with little kids. Let's look at Psalm 34, because it is really, it's at first, 
when you read this uh, psalm, and he quotes from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16, from that psalm, which is verse 10 through 12 in 1 Peter 3. When a New Testament author quotes from the Old Testament, what they're doing is they're trying to substantiate and prove the point they're making. Does that sentence make sense to you, what I just said? When a New Testament author quotes from or alludes to the Old Testament, they're trying to prove or illustrate the point they're making. So it gives added authority to what they're saying. So he quotes from Psalm 34, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Verse 12 is the overarching reason for this. For, or you could translate that because, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, Peter is quoting from Psalm 34 in verse 10 and 11 of 1 Peter 3, basically saying the same thing he's just said, right? And basically saying the same thing. Whoever desires to love life, see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit, let him turn away from evil and do good, let him seek peace and pursue it. Peace, shalom, and interpersonal relations. So he's just he's kind of restating it, and in, in, so he's giving authority, giving uh, substantiation, giving proof from the Old Testament and the authority of the Old Testament in what he's just said. But then he adds the reason, because he doesn't say that in verse eight and nine. So he quotes from the Old Testament to remind us: the Lord is watching us. The Lord is watching. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Let's stop there for just a minute. Think about that with me. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Now that, you know, God is spirit, so it doesn't mean God has eyes up there and has bifocals or something. But what does that mean? The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. In what sense is that positive? In what sense is that negative? That was not a rhetorical question. That was, you know, this is what's called class discussion. I'm just kidding. So the eyes of the Lord are on the right. In what sense is that positive and affirming and encouraging for us? He takes note. Well, yes. And he empowers us. Yeah, he empowers. He, you know, you can, as Fred did a a little bit ago, you can work in the whole matter of the Holy Spirit and, and all of that into it. So it's very positive and it's very affirming, and it's very encouraging. Jesus said before he went back to the Father, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now, that's positive and encouraging and affirming, but it should also be convicting. That means everything I do and everything I say, Jesus is there. He's watching. So it's, it's convicting in the sense that it should always motivate us or always cause us to remember, the Lord is watching what I'm doing. The Lord is watching how I respond. So it's both very positive and affirming, but it also is, in a sense, convicting. But then he adds an extremely positive point, and his ears are open to their prayer. You know, it, 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 there is never, ever, 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 ever a circumstance ima- that's ever unimaginable where God is not going to hear your prayer. God is open to the prayers of the righteous. He hears. He answers. Jesus in Matthew 7 says, Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be open. And he's using a bunch of metaphors. And what's his point? God hears your prayers. <laughs> I mean, don't be afraid. Jesus said, I'm going back to the Father. And listen, I'm telling you, prayer is going to really be important in your life. Ask anything. Don't be afraid to come to the Father with anything. And then that 
additional thought that he adds in, in another teaching where he's saying the same thing is, and as I go back to Father, seating at his right hand, I will pray for you. I will intercede for you. So, you know, men, we're sitting around this table, but do, do you understand what he said? Right now, Jesus Christ is in heaven interceding for you. And then in Romans 8 and in Galatians, uh, Paul says that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit prays for us. When we're groaning and overwhelmed with things and can't even articulate a prayer, what Paul says, the Holy Spirit articulates it into a prayer. So Peter is quoting from Psalm 34 to remind us that the eyes of the Lord, both very affirming and encouraging, but also convicting, and his ears are always open to prayer. But then reminding us, too, that the face of the Lord is against those who are evil. And that's, I understand that ultimately, to mean that the Lord is going to hold them accountable. Vengeance is his. He will hold them accountable. And so we, we leave chapter, this part of the chapter, chapter 3, we leave this with a, what I think is one of the most enormous challenges in, in, in the scriptures. And uh, that the enormity of that challenge is, here are the virtues of righteousness. This is what it looks like. You can look at a lot of passages in the New Testament. Paul itemizes these out. But it's how Peter does this um, in both a positive and a negative, and it's a powerful, encouraging quotation from Psalm 34. Walking with the Lord in obedience brings great blessing. All right, any final questions, comments, thoughts? I mean, you have to, you have to do with this a passage. You have to do with this what you feel comfortable dealing with. I don't have a template to impose on all of you. You have to deal with this. But I, that's why I use this little phrase up here. I think in these areas, Lord, I really need help. I'm just making this up. I really need help in how I respond to evil and, and insult, right? Because I know I'm not responding in a God honoring way. Lord, I need your help here. Help me to develop a strategy in how so I'm thinking through the kind of person I want to be. When a barista at Starbucks doesn't fulfill my order the right way, how am I going to respond to that? When a, a clerk at Walmart using your advice, clerk at Walmart does gets my order wrong or makes a mistake or just how am I going to respond to that person? Or just this is what my wife says, honey, smile. <laughs> and she's always she's always telling me that smile. And I'm a, maybe you haven't noticed that, but I'm a very intense person. And so my intensity sometimes, if I'm getting ready to preach or I'm going into a, is I'm so intense, I'm so thinking about that, that I don't notice people and smile, hi, how are you this morning? It's like, get out of my way. I've got God's work to do, you know. I'm, I'm being a little bit uh, humorous there. But that intensity that is a part of my personality and temperament can be misread by people. That's why Peggy keeps saying, honey, smile, smile, smile. Don't just shake their hand. Smile. So anyway. And it's having that awareness of where our inadequacies are and that can lead us into some trouble. Lord, help me. I've got to have a, I've, I've got to think through what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? What do I do in this situation? And you know, I don't know about you, but that's how I've dealt with things like this. I've watched the Lord honor that. Because my initial thing is impulsive. It's not usually very popular. Oh, and he reminds me. Or my wife beside me, and she reminds me. She's the vehicle of the challenge from the Holy Spirit so often. All right, any final thoughts before we leave this? Because the next paragraph, this you probably want to stay away now for the rest of the study of First Peter. Because the rest of Peter is on suffering and persecution. Who wants to talk about that? But in the early church, and, and for us in the, in, in the United States in the 21st century, the suffering part of it, I, I think we can see in each one of our lives or families or, or we've experienced it. Persecution, maybe not. 
But the, the, the point Peter is making here is he is writing to a church. And, you know, the churches, remember, they're up in what today would be eastern Turkey is where he was originally, originally writing. They were experiencing a tremendous amount of persecution. And this was a real suffering church. So Peter is writing to them. But we broaden it to apply to all of our lives. Man, I've uh, you know been in the academic world most of my life, and I've, I've been with a lot of, uh, in broader circles, I've been with a lot of secular people, atheist, naturalist people. And you know, their perceived vulnerability for Christianity is you don't have an answer for suffering. You tell me God is good, which is what we say. I don't know about you, but the very first prayer my mother taught me was a little prayer that I always said when it was my turn to pray for for the meal. God is good. God is great. Did you ever pray that prayer? And I never thought about it until I got in seminary. God is good. God is great. Because to say God is good, and there is a massacre in a little Baptist church in Texas on a Sunday where a young man goes up and down the road shooting and killing people. 26, I think, is that the total number? You tell me God is good? I don't believe it. My mother is racked with, I'm making this up. I had a guy one time tell me, my mother is racked with pancreatic cancer, suffering terribly, and you tell me God is good? Or, you know, an automobile accident. A guy one time told me this. His, his wife and two children were killed. How can I believe in a good God? I'm telling you, man, that we got to have an answer for that. We have to be able to. How do we? How do we respond to that? And Peter is not necessarily answering that question here, although he does eventually get around to that. He's more interested in our response because as Is it all right if I do one more thing with this? I, I, I want to I illustrate to you that how important this really is. Uh, philosophers and ethicists and others talk about three types of evil. There's moral evil. There's natural evil. And then this is a big word that the philosophers use. But there's metaphysical evil. <clears throat> Easy one, natural evil. This is things that are just a part of a life, like, you know, tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and all that kind of stuff that just naturally happen uh, due to nature or storms or whatever. Moral evil are the individual acts of people. Uh, it can be anywhere from a murder to... You know, you know the, the kinds of things that are associated with what we've seen in some of these mass killings of late in our nation and so on. Metaphysical evil is, is much, much deeper. This deals with really issues like the cause of evil. Why, why is there suffering? Why is there evil in this world? And more particularly, who or what is the cause of it? <clears throat> But each one of these, we must have an answer for. And what the Bible does is the Bible says the ultimate explanation for all of these is sin. Because um, we live in a world that is broken and fallen and in rebellion against God. Uh, that's very clear, and you start with Genesis 3, that's where you see it. And then you just see it unfold. And what the Bible does is the Bible makes it very clear that disease, now not individual personal disease, you, you, know, you, you may develop heart problems, so it's not because you did a specific sin and God is now paying you back. It's just 
The brokenness and fallenness of this world is evidenced by the brokenness and fallenness of our bodies. And none of you have experienced this yet, but as you get older, you just more and more things you cannot do. And it doesn't, all that means is your body is just, I mean, I cannot keep the pace I used to keep. I'm 70, and I know I'm the oldest person in this room, and I just, there's just things I cannot do anymore. And that's, what does that mean? It's just the debilitating nature of a body that's deteriorating. Why does the Bible say that my body is deteriorating? Because of sin. Not specific individual personal sin necessarily. You know, it's just, that's the nature of things. And accidents and disasters are a part of a fallen, broken world. Because Jesus, or I mean, uh, Genesis 3 makes it very clear, and the Lord reinforces that in the dialogues, that you have to understand that the natural consequences of sin bring a curse on everything. Everything is cursed, and God is going to release that curse. He's going to remake the world when his son returns, and so on. So, you know, that, that t- for you and me to say that to somebody that's not a believer, that doesn't, that doesn't mean an awful lot. But you and I have to have that absolutely, absolutely resolved in our own life. Because, and this is, this is the linchpin of it, God sent his son, Jesus, who second person in the Trinity, who added to his deity humanity, came to earth for one purpose, to die a substitutionary death. That's how God's solving the problem of evil, through his son. And Jesus became, I think this is the right way to say it, Jesus became a victim of evil to eradicate evil. Do you understand that sentence? I mean, he became a victim of evil because what happened to Jesus, that was a monstrous act of evil. He was innocent. He was perfect. He was righteous. But he submitted to that and and, and all the suffering and everything that went with it in order to pay that price to deal with our problem of sin and rebellion against God and then to show that it was accepted he paid the penalty by dying and then the Father through the Holy Spirit as Paul puts it in Romans 1 resurrected him so that death no longer has authority the penalty's been removed and for the believer what I did, Doug's graveside service Friday afternoon, I used the three metaphors in the New Testament for the death of a believer. We go to sleep, we depart, and go to the next stage of our journey, and we go home. There's the three metaphors for the death of a believer in the New Testament. And why? Why, why do we talk like that? Because the Lord Jesus paid the price, and we now have a a, a relationship with the Lord that helps us to understand that indeed God is good. God's not malevolent. God's not evil. He is dealing with the challenge to his sovereignty and his holiness through his Son. Because these questions ultimately have to drive us to the cross. So therefore, and that, I know this is really hard, but it's, it's really the core of where Peter's going. Therefore, what God is really interested in is our response to suffering. And suffering takes on all kinds of dimensions. It can be physical suffering, it can be emotional suffering, and it's all those things. This is the kind of world that we live in. And so what God is really, I, I, this Sunday I preached on Job or at my church. Uh, but anyway, Job's that kind of, it drives you to that. Because what's going on in those first two chapters is something that Job didn't know about. Job didn't know that Satan was challenging God when you know, God said, did you see, you're down there, did you see Job? He's my man. Did you see him? He's upright, blameless, fears me, worships me, turning away from evil. And you remember what Satan does? Satan throws down the gauntlet and proposes a thesis. Oh, Job follows you, worships you just because of what he gets out of the deal. You've made him a wealthy man. Anybody would serve a God like that. Let me take away his wealth and I'll have him cursing you tomorrow. And that's what God does. God permits that. 
And you know what happens. Every indication, every manifestation, every evidence of God's material blessing in Job's life is taken away from him. All his animals, all his servants, and all ten of his children. And what does Job say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. He has given this to me, and he has chosen to take it away. And then chapter 2 is just as penetrating. Satan comes in again. God says, did you see? I told you that Job's my man. Did you see? I I let you do that to him. And look what he did. And Satan says, ah, an idiom, skin for skin. You and I would put it this way. Oh, he's just interested in saving his own skin. He doesn't care about his kids. He doesn't care about his animals. He doesn't care about anything, just himself. Let me add him, and I'll have him cursing you. So God lets Satan touch his body. And this, I just, this is absolutely unimaginable to me. In verse 8 and 9, here's Job sitting in the garbage dump of Oz. This great wealthy man, judge in the city, scraping with a broken piece of pottery the boils on his body. And Mrs. Job comes along, grieving the loss of her children and everything. She says, Job, give it up. Curse God and die. It isn't worth it. And then Job says, should I only accept what I perceive is good from God? No, God has chosen this. I accept this. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know about you guys, but that's hard for me to put myself in that kind of a position. This is what Peter's getting at as he starts this passage. It's going to go through the end of the book, through much, not all, but almost all of chapter 5. How do we deal with suffering in our lives? And so I've entitled the first part of this, verses 13 through 17, The Blessing of Suffering for Righteousness. And then verses 18 through 22, the pattern of Christ's suffering and exaltation. And then the first verses of chapter 4, death to the old life. So, you know, I I try to outline some of this stuff as, as we go through these studies over the years and I hope this is helpful because we have to kind of segment some of this stuff out this isn't necessarily the only way to do it and so he begins in verse 13 I want to start this because I'm no amount of time but I still have one minute and I'll use every one of those seconds now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good but Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So if you want to really understand what Peter is saying with these two rhetorical questions, I'll see you next week. (laughs) Say about the smile. When you smile, you're a picture. And a picture is a thousand words. Comparable. Yes, but my smile and so ugly, nobody's going to say. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the challenges that the Word of God brings to our lives and our, our desired response of understanding and then applying these grand truths to our lives. I pray for each man around this table, and I absolutely include myself. Uh, help us to be the men that you want us to be in terms of these character traits in terms of these virtues of righteousness, in terms of these habits of life that you want us to adopt. And help us to be men, as a couple of the guys have illustrated here, to be men who who do not respond impulsively with a spirit of vengeance, but to let people see through our actions, through our expressions, through our words, that we do really represent Jesus. We're different than the common, ordinary person because we know Christ. We have his spirit. Lord, that we're work in progress, every one of us. None of us has arrived yet. But Lord, help us to have that intentionality, that strategy for holiness, to, to be the kind of men that Peter's talking about in those verses which we've studied last week and this week. Um, 
your, your eyes are upon us, which is both in comforting and encouraging, but in a sense convicting because you are watching us. And also that tremendous benefit that we have of praying and talking to you about anything that is a part of our lives. Lord, help us to be the kind of men who honor you in our actions, um, exalt you in our thoughts, and manifest you in what we say. Although I think this has to be put in context, preaching the gospel is not just the words we say. It is the actions that we live. It's, it's how we live our lives. So help us to be men that, that are like that. That's pleasing to you. And again, we're in a work in progress. We're all in the process of being transformed. Thanks for your patience and love with, uh, for us. And we ask you that we can just encourage one another to be the kind of men that you want us to be. So dismiss us with your blessing on this absolutely beautiful day you've created and that you've decided to share with us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. See you next week.